0: Douglas Castro, what is Neural DSP?
1: Neural DSP is a music technology company focused on leveraging powerful and productive new technologies to empower musicians to be more creative.
0: Welcome to Inference, an AI business podcast by Silo AI. I'm Ville Hulkko, co-founder of SILO, the largest private AI lab in the Nordics that focuses on building human-centric AI for businesses. With me today is Douglas Castro. Douglas is the founder and CEO of Neural DSP, the industry-leading professional-grade sound processing company. Neural DSP is known for its impeccable software-based guitar and bass amp simulations, and Neural is one of the earliest and leading applicators of machine learning in sound processing. Douglas is also a known pioneer in the industry. His other company, Darkglass Electronics, has created the de facto sound behind modern rock bass tones used by artists such as Foo Fighters, Nolly Get Good and Faith No More. Doug, it really is a privilege to have you with us. Welcome. Thank you for having me. So it's a bit of a fanboy moment for me, so I know exactly who you are, as I probably use your products more than I use Netflix. But for the rest of the people who are listening, uh, could you give us an insight into your background? So who are you and what do you do?
1: Sure. Um, I am from South America, from Chile. Um, so I am an immigrant. I've been here for 13 years now. In November, it'll be 13 years, so 12 and a half. I am also a musician, been a bass player for 20 years, and a guitarist for about one year. And I'm also an electronics engineer. So I'm really passionate about music and technology and engineering. I love making new things, whether it's writing a song, well, not anymore, but when I was younger or designing products, coming up with a vision for a product or a service, and then figuring out how to make it happen. Uh, and that also transpires to creating brands and teams and, and companies. So I, I just like starting things from scratch, things that I think could be useful, interesting and fun uh, and challenging. And yeah, I, I combine sort of these passions for creating new things, some technical know-how uh, and insight my passion for music and, and, try to, yeah, make incredible products for musicians. With our DSP, we sort of have these two, two main lines, which are the opposite ends of, of the spectrum if you play guitar or bass. With our software products, we digitize really, really expensive and rare equipment, amplifiers, microphones, pedals, that you know are not even available. And even if they were, you'd have to spend tens of thousands of years to purchase. We're sort of at the uncanny value already, like indistinguishable from the real thing versions in software. Uh, and then you are able to buy this equipment for 100 years or a bit over 100 years. So it's a sort of, uh, my estimate is 100x reduction in price for, for the same value, right? The, the same options. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And then on the hardware side, which is our, we, we, have, we sort of developed our own computer which processes all the sound and conditions all the signals. So it's self-sufficient with the touchscreen and that's on the very fancy side of, of things. And that's a couple grand basically, uh, but it has everything you'd want and, and more. So uh, yeah, you know, although we're a, a software company with a heavy emphasis on signal processing, algorithm research and machine learning, uh, we're not afraid of hardware. We design a lot of hardware and we have our own manufacturing as well. So it's sort of a, a quite vertically integrated, diverse company in many ways.
0: So basically, you take the amplifiers and sounds that used to be forced to invest 4,000 euros to get and now make it available as basically a digital twin for about 100 euros. Yeah, and,
1: and more, right? Because the amplifier is that, but then you have a few speaker cabinets, you know, at a couple grand, you have, mm-hmm. and you know, the microphones we use for capturing the speaker responses is, is it can be thousands because some, some of these mics are really rare and expensive. If you add the pedal scene, I think that the math always adds up to a, about 10 grand that we had to you know, spend to, to buy the original equipment to model it, uh, yeah. and then we sell it for a hundred bucks. So it's a good deal. Uh, and also an- another thing that, that we really, that for me is very important. It's always been, I've always been very, uh, although I have a technical background in electronics mm-hmm. engineering, I've always considered myself not so much of a scientist or, or even an engineer, but more of an artist. Like I've always, I used to write poetry and, and read lots of literature. And, and, and before I got into music and electronics, I used to paint and draw mm. so aesthetics have always been very very important to me and and interestingly enough even now when I well not anymore because I have people that are better than me at that but back in the day when I would design the schematics for a Douglas pedal, early Douglas products mm. uh, sometimes I made decisions that were very unorthodox from an electronics best practice point of view but I would choose to do them because I thought the schematic looked better like it it was more aesthetically pleasing and the schematics Mm -hmm. are super top secret like nobody would ever see these but i really wanted to know that when i looked at the box knowing that everything about it was beautiful up to the abstraction of the circuit which is the schematic and and i think that that's very reflective Mm -hmm. in our products as well um i I think our planes are not only really 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 good sounding uh i I, of course i'm really biased i think they're the best sounding ones uh but that's arguable because sound Mm -hmm. is very subjective but I think it's really hard to argue that they're the best looking guitar plugins on the market, like nothing else comes yeah. even close. Uh, and I think that's very inspiring because at the end, I don't know, man, like the, you play guitar. So the audience, you know, if you're playing a gig, they won't know whether you're using a Kemper or, uh, or a fractal audio probably, or, or, you know, if you're, mm. if you're using a pod Cortex or a Helix or a real amp on a really good modeler, the audience mm. doesn't know like that. This is a misconception. It's like the, the audience doesn't need to know. The gear is for the player, not for the audience. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's how do you feel knowing that you're playing through gear that you find inspiring, that I think yeah. that, that has a very direct impact on, on the experience the audience has when they're watching you play live or how you perform when you're, you know, cutting tracks in the studio. And I really believe that the products need to be far more than very, very functional and intuitive, but also need to be inspiring. And I think... Mm. The visual aspect of that is very important. So, I really, you know, my co founder Francisco, who runs the, the entire plugin development and also a lot of the quad cortex stuff, he, he's, he's our chief product officer. So, I think that we always emphasize that when you open a new plugin, for you know, you're getting a trial or, or, or buying it when it's released the first thing you see has to be like, holy cow, this is gorgeous. You know, before you play one note, you're like, oh man, this is going to be good. And I think that sort of sets everything up for people to have a very fun and enjoyable experience. Uh, At the end, you know, if the plugin sounds crap, like it's not going to do much, but if everything else is there, you know, the features are there, the sound is there, just having this like visual gratification when you use it is just, I feel, runs up the experience and makes it very formidable. So really try to create a special experiences when users user products. And and a lot of the work we do is, you know, with Quad Cortex, for example, a lot of the focus we have now, it's uh it's not perfect. There are many aspects in which the user experience it's not nowhere near perfect. And we're focusing mm-hmm. a lot on that, actually. It's like decrapping it, <laughs> making it yeah. closer to, to perfect. I mean, it has a. I, I don't know. I'm not sure if you've tried it, but it has amazing things. I couldn't use anything else. Uh, mm-hmm. I believe it's the best product of its kind in the market, but that doesn't mean that it's perfect by any means. So, uh, yeah.
0: Yeah, and with the aesthetics, like if you consider how Neuro exists, like the way that I see it, you basically live in a symbiosis with the artists and the amp makers, right? Mm -hmm. So in in essence, you looking beautiful and your products looking beautiful are an extension of the look of the artists themselves. So, you know, not only is it like a commercial thing, but it's probably a very big factor why the best in the best of the industry choose to work with you guys, aside of the sound too.
1: Yeah, uh, absolutely. And, And you know... I think that I mean it, it's pretty sort of intuitive, but is that a lot of these big artists, you know, musicians, mm. uh, they are also very, very invested in the aesthetics of of their, you know, yeah. brands as musicians. They um, they put a lot of effort, almost as much effort on the artwork for their albums uh, as they do in the music itself and the production of the music. And what we find is that uh, our design team, which I believe is in the industry as well something that they're like magical at is, is through talking with the artists and, and you know exchanging ideas and, and they're able to capture the vision of the artists because at the end these artists mm-hmm. are great musicians that so they might have like a clear sense for the, what their aesthetics are the vibe but they're not designers necessarily so yeah. but our, our guys are really good at grasping these abstract guidelines and creating something that's it's entirely the artist's vision, but it's better than they would have ever expected. Uh, and that's why all of our plugins in a way look similar because they're designed by the same industrial designers and graphic designers, yeah. but they also all look different because they're all done with different artists that have different mm-hmm. philosophies and sense of, of aesthetic. So that is really enjoyable. Like I really look forward to when the guys are working on, on a new plugin is where will this go now? So yeah, it, it's, it's very cool.
0: Moving towards machine learning, so you you use machine learning as one of the key technologies within yep. your LDSP, and in the amplification world, like first you had the tube amplification with the Marshall stacks on ACDC stages, then you had the semiconductor-based amps that were accessible to basically every bedroom, and now it's creeping toward amp sims for every laptop, so basically a piece of software, a piece of plug-in within your computer that makes the sound that you needed to have the... ACDC Stacks for it before. So mm-hmm. can you talk about what the software-based amp simulation is? Just explain it out loud and what the significance of machine learning is for that.
1: Sure. So, I mean, I think it's important to say that digital amplifier, key amplifier emulation has been around for 25 years, maybe it's like 90s. It's nothing new. Our approach is new because we're doing it in a very different way. So that's just uh, wanted to clarify that we didn't invent amplifier simulation. Mm -hmm. I mean, companies have been doing it since I was in elementary school. Uh, Okay. So basically an amplifier is, it's a chain of stages, uh, game stages that amplify the signal and filter the signal so that your very small guitar output is loud enough to move electrically, has enough energy to move a speaker so that it can be heard by a lot of people. That, that's sort of, roughly speaking, what an amplifier does. The thing is that the perfect amplifier doesn't exist, so there are all all sorts of really unintended, uh, originally intended, and originally undesired effects such as distortion and, and nonlinear frequency responses and, and really, really weird stuff uh, that became part of the character of, of what guitar is supposed to sound like. Mm. It's very interesting because now we spent months trying to recreate an effect that engineers in the 60s were, were trying to get rid of <laughs> because mm-hmm. it wasn't like sort of technically good to have. That's sort of like, like a very ironic uh, part of what we do now is that we're yeah. spending, you know, Millions in R and D and having lots of people with really high IQs and, and lots of degrees trying to recreate something that you know Rupert Neve was trying to get rid of at all costs sixty years ago. Imperfection
0: by nature, <laughs>
1: exactly. Uh, but at the end, of the, that's music, right? Like it's art. Art is not perfect. Like <laughs> anyway, I, I'm deviating. Um, so yeah, modeling amplifiers are as machines themselves. Mm. They're pretty simple. Like the topologies are very simple, but they're creating there's like a few number of components do all sorts of really strange things that that actually recreating that behavior mathematically can be extremely extremely difficult well modeling a system is very difficult like that wasn't it that until very recently we didn't have really accurate models for how would smoke dissipate through air right and it's something Mm -hmm. that any human can see it and have an intuitive understanding of of how it works and even make some crude predictions of where will the smoke go depending on what direction the wind is blowing and and, and how bright is the flame Uh, but It took a lot of time and energy and technology to model that and and be able to predict the behavior. Something similar happens with amplifiers. My background is in designing these analog systems. And I can tell you that the people that make models of these understand my products way better than I do, for example, Mm -hmm. like way better, because there are things that, there are decisions that I made uh, that were just like, yeah, that was the best sounding component, chip number, or that was the right amount of game because I made an aesthetic decision. They need to understand sort of -of 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 almost like an, not on like a physics level, but pretty close Mm -hmm. how, what everything in the circuit is doing, because then you need to translate that into, you know, a set of differential equations, and then Mm -hmm. you need to write some C++ code that will solve these differential equations in real time. And if your mathematical, if your understanding of the circuit is good enough and your mathematical model is close enough to the behavior that you understood from the circuit, and your code is good enough to (laughs) solve this efficiently in real time, then you have a good sounding, amplifier model, uh, but it requires mm-hmm. full-stack skills all the way from low hardware-level understanding to DSP mathematics and, and also, most likely, C++. And actually, if you want to run these things on, a, on an embedded system like a quad cortex, you, because your code is, is you write code on, on on a laptop, right? So your C++ code is probably not compiled to optimally run on a different chip, like a shark processor, like we're in quad cortex, for example. Mm-hmm. So then, in many cases, there's lots of assembly level optimization as well. So so you sort of have like the full stack all the way from hardware to higher level code and, and everything in between. So it, it's very difficult to do. Uh modeling amplifiers are very difficult to do because uh it's very difficult to find people that can understand a circuit, you know, at that level with that level of granularity, that also have the DSP and the mathematics background, and that also have the C proficiency to write efficient models. And then if you had the sort of assembly level optimization factor in then then you're you know there's like five dudes in the whole world that like not not five, but you know, it's like tens of people that, that can do it really, really well. And I think that's why there are very, very few companies in the world that are doing modeling at a like, you know, world class level. I would say there's for sort of like five companies. And the engineers combined is probably, you know, fifty <laughs> or, or maybe a hundred tops. So that's the traditional sort of DSP modeling approach. Uh, What we realized in the beginning was that this was very, very, that was definitely not going to work for us because we wanted to do this quad cortex hardware product since the beginning. And, you know, for that we needed hundreds of amplifiers or at least dozens of amplifiers. And it took our world-class DSP PhD guys two months to model an amplifier. So Mm. the math didn't really add up because we barely had any money and we would need probably uh, on our timeline for the quad cortex was two years. So Mm. we would have needed more engineers than probably exist in the whole world that we couldn't even afford mm. it if, even if you could convince them to recruit them all and we probably would have needed five times the, the amount of, of time uh, to complete the project so the conventional approach wasn't going to work in the time frame we had and with the resources constraints we had so the only option we had left was actually try to automate entire like automate the entire process and that's when machine learning sort of became this kind of like last resort which at the end you know this is 2017, 2018, there wasn't much you know, literature or even people playing around with sort of automated modeling using uh, machine learning. It was very new at the time, and we were lucky enough to run into a few folk from Alto. Mm. It was this perfect combination between people from the acoustics lab that had an incredible understanding of the conventional DSP side of things meeting up with some people from the speech side of of Avalto, who also Mm. were really passionate about guitar and music. So there was this sort of like perfect combination between passion for music, deep understanding of electronics and DSP mathematics and, Mm. you know, world-class proficiency in in speech synthesis and then sort of like machine learning, which is sort of like a very, probably the most developed intersection of audio and, and machine learning currently. Speech in general, I mean, recognition and synthesis. So, yeah we were very lucky that these two people met and i was very lucky to meet them at a party actually at, at Alto, and yeah they helped a lot i mean the company was already going on and we were doing products with the conventional approach uh mm-hmm. but these people were really like a, you know like like a catalyst to to a lot of, of great things um so yeah we were able to automate the whole process so instead of having you know two phds look at a schematic and r- risking electrocution by propping an amplifier that's powered with 500 volts Uh, and then we're doing a bunch of math and a bunch of code. We just designed some robots that turn the knobs. We designed probing signal that it's very long, uh, and it generates all the training data you need. So we just run this, it's few hours worth of signals. Uh, the robots move all the knobs and we record all of that. And if you're lucky in a few hours, you have a model of an amplifier. It sounds exactly the same. As you're, know, in a way that I've never seen before. Well, one thing we need to understand, mm. particularly with tube amplifiers, is that when you're doing a white box model, meaning that you, you know, you have access to the schematic and everything, when you're analyzing the schematic, you're sort of basing everything on on ideal values of everything, right? You, you don't take into mm. account component tolerances, for example, which are huge. Output transformers are super, super, super variable and subject to all sorts of non-linear behavior. They have a lot of character. Mm to the sound of the amplifier, that's not really even understood how or why. So there are physics there that we don't completely understand yet. I don't think Mm -hmm. we'll ever understand because there's just not enough financial incentive for anyone to dedicate, you know, lots of research into understanding what are the effects of an output transformer on your Marshall amplifier? Like, that's just, (laughs) it's not worth Mm -hmm. the scientific pursuit at this stage. So another one that, that our approach has combined with, you know, automating and being more efficient is that if you can hear the effect, that any component has on the signal, we will mm. recreate it. We don't need to understand the physics behind it. We don't need to, you know, start thinking about, you know, hysteresis and, and electromagnetic mm. core saturation on this. We don't care about any of that. Is the speaker fully linear or does it have a non-linear region? Do you know does it saturate? We don't care because if the microphone picks it up, our model will uh will take that behavior into account and, and it'll be a part of the model. So the advantage it's sort of like this exponential, exponentially better approach in that it's more accurate than anyone else's. And it also takes probably 1% of the resources, like time and, and energy and, and talent, uh, than anyone else's. So, yeah, it, it was a game changer. But now in, in Einstein, it was a brilliant move on, on our end. But, you know, four years ago, we were all pretty sure that it wasn't going to work. But, you know, the, the alternative was certainly not going to work. So
2: yeah.
1: if one has a you know 0% success rate and the other option has a 10% success rate, 10% looks pretty good. And that's why we ended up relying so heavily on, on, on machine learning. And the, the other cool thing is that it's opening a lot of other doors. I mean, the Cortex has mm. this really cool feature called Neural Capture, which allows users to create their own black box models of their gear, pedals, and amplifiers. So we don't even need to model everything ourselves. Users can, if they have an amplifier that they like, but, you know, the amplifier is really big and bulky, or maybe it's a very rare and expensive amplifier. You don't want to bring it to a shitty bar where people might throw beer at it. You can just make mm. captures of their amplifier. You, you know, digitize it. It's like scanning it, you know, uh, you, you scan your amplifier, now it's stored on your device. And now you can take the amplifier that you love, you know, your $5,000 super rare Marshall amplifier, you leave it safe at home or in your rehearsal room, and you take the digital version onto to the quad cortex. And on top of that, we also create a, a, a sort of a cloud service. Each quad cortex is connected to the cloud. So uh, we have an app where people can create a profile and share and, and exchange these captures and and presets as well so so there's a community component to to the cortex experience which is very cool if you i don't know if you want to learn a meshuga song you can actually go to the cortex cloud and look for meshuga presets or captures Mm. of 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 amplifiers that meshuga uses and you can sort of Mm. nail the tone and that is like super super cool
0: Now, I absolutely love that from AI's perspective because if you go back in the recent machine learning history, like one of the most common ways that an industrial level AI conversation started, usually, was that an organization decided that we need machine learning now. We have a very strong idea that this is going to be a competitive advantage for us. We really don't know how, we really don't know why, but we just know that we need to start exploring with this, which often led to very, very skewed starting points in how and, you know, kind of just a common misconception about what AI is in the whole process, like it's it's not a default by itself, it's just a catalyst to make something a little bit more efficient, right? But basically what you're describing about the genesis of a neural old ESP is you took a look at the process, you already had a problem that you needed to solve and you just figured, okay, so there isn't really any other sensible way for us to go about this than to try out machine learning, kind of as a last resort option, which in a sense is... The purest way of starting to implement a new technology, right? Because you're completely unencumbered by any of the hype, any of the expectations, any of the anything except trial and error and see how it floats. Mm -hmm. And then another thing that I really loved about what you describe is the theory versus the practical side. So with the traditional side of pursuing with mathematics and traditional modeling first, you take a look at some of the theoretical values that you get from the components themselves and you try to replicate them in a mathematical way. Whereas if you start to do signals processing to the actual sound that comes from the device using machine learning there, you're kind of not as encumbered with the theoretical maxims as you are just with the actual raw sound, the raw input that comes out from the device. So, you know, not only is it a more efficient way of reaching the same end goal, the end goal is actually, as a derivative, slightly better than it would be using an alternative method. And going back to the genesis days of Neural DSP, like if we take a look at years 2015, 16, 17, 18, and so forth, uh, when machine learning started to become a thing and started to become discussed again, industry-wise, like how did the music industry look back in the day from machine learning's perspective? Was this the technology commonly discussed or available? What was the status there?
1: So I I can give you a very sort of clear indicator of of how quickly... Now it's very common, but, but it, it exploded very quickly. So uh, first year of Neural DSP 2018, uh, me and then he was our machine learning guy, but now he leads the, the machine learning team, Tan. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's a Greek-Finnish brilliant engineer and neuroscientist. Uh, we went to the biggest uh, digital Audio Music DSP conference called DAFX. It's in Europe mm-hmm. every year. It's a journal as well. And once a year, there's a conference. People submit papers. And each, you know, paper gives a 20 minute presentation. It's very cool. Um, It's like 50, 50 academia and industry. So, you know, you'll meet the DSP guys from Ableton, Native Instruments, Isotope, like all these amazing companies. And also you'll meet sort of their professors Mm. (laughs) and, and you know, that sort of like the new generation of of PhD candidates and postdocs uh, doing interesting things. So it's a great place to be in the loop of, of where the industry is going in terms of like, you know, the very, very core technology. And also get to meet all these people. Every, of course, every day there's a dinner and, and bars, and, and it's just a—it's it, a great place to be. Uh, mm. So we went for the first time in 2018 because a lot of our friends from other companies and from the from Alto were going. So we we joined. It was just the two of us. It was in Portugal. Uh, out of 100 papers or 100 presentations, there was one that that sort of uh, mentioned machine learning for audio purposes, and it was by a lead uh, engineer at Isotope, And isotope has been—they've uh, they, been one of the pioneers in actually incorporating. Uh, machine learning for audio solutions, but they are focused on smart plugins that allow you to automate production processes, Uh, very different to Mm. to our application. That was it. So that's 2018. 2019, we go back a year later, Mm. and 90 presentations were machine learning, audio related, and 10 were not. (laughs) So (laughs) it it, it literally, it it sort of exploded 90 fold uh, in a year. Which is crazy, uh, and 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 now I think DSP engineers are actually very smart people. So I, I'm sure some are just using machine learning to try to see if they can sexify, uh, make their work sexier and, and you know more mm. marketable mm. or just for fun. But there's also now now there's a lot of really really smart people on the DSP side who are playing around with you know combining traditional machine learning techniques uh, with audio processing. So I mean the interesting thing is that single processing, right? You can be talking about electromagnetic radio signals, image processing, thermal imaging, <laughs> video processing or mm-hmm. music. And, and at the end, you know, a filter is a filter, a transfer function is a transfer function. And all sort of all, all the core mathematics uh, principles, mathematical principles for signal processing are quite universal, actually. Mm. And actually, I think that's been a really key thing on, on our work. So our engineers have borrowed solutions from image processing, for example, a lot or from speech. You know, this is for making guitar products. So Mm. the fact there's so much investment and and much more literature on machine learning applications for solving problems in other fields has enabled a lot of our sort of solutions or has inspired a lot of our solutions. So, uh, yeah. It's very interesting.
0: Yeah, and talking about the kind of the team that you have inside. So as you go about creating a company that produces machine learning simulated amps, essentially, like what does your team composition look like today? How much of those people are machine learning versus others? Like what's the concoction? So,
1: I mean, I would say it's probably 50-50, the machine learning team. And, you know, all the machine learning guys are also DSP guys. So, which Mm -hmm. is a huge advantage. Uh, They could do both. So they could model amplifiers on the conventional approach. Yes, as well as, as they can do, you know, cutting edge machine learning thing. So that's uh, in addition to that, we have four or five, like really, really, actually six really senior DSP guys, you know, who, who have a, a decade or two of experience. The machine mm-hmm. learning guys are, are, are younger, you know, they're all sort of mid thirties to mid twenties. Mm-hmm. And the DSP guys are, you know, like a decade, on average a decade older, but yeah, it's about the same sort of like six and six, basically. Uh, that's like kind of like the core algorithm re- research team and the that actually that that is very very cool because we have this like you know the the commercial dsp guys who are also geniuses and very 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 senior experienced um, who help these crazy young geniuses with all these like really insane ideas implement Mm -hmm. their ideas in a way that's practical and efficient Uh, and Mm -hmm. there's a lot of mutual respect so like one of our most brilliant uh, machine learning guys was talking to our sort of our senior DSP guy. Uh, and the, the machine learning guy told me that, dude, Rob, every time I talk to Rob, I get the feeling that he's forgotten more about DSP than I will ever learn. And Rob, like the same they told me like, dude, Tom's code is, I've never seen anything like this. This is brilliant, new, like, there's a very like, there, there, I think in many companies and many cultures, you can have a clash between sort of like the mm-hmm. old school guys and, and the, the new wave. Uh, here nearly Mm -hmm. is the opposite there's like not in spite of the differences but because of their differences there's like their differences are a huge source of respect and admiration mutual uh and and i think that's been a key part of our uh, of us making it work actually because you need you know rob has 20 years of experience doing you know assembly level shark dsp implementation so you might need people like that if your super awesome algorithm is you know written python (laughs) you you need to sort of recreate it you know like eight layers below that uh, for it to run on a quad cortex, for example. So, But yeah, that's that sort of like full stack and diverse background of, of, of the agri research team. Mm. It is very mm. important.
0: It merits to, for a moment, to the horn of Finland in terms of AI, if you will, because you know both are Finnish enterprises. Um, back in the day before SILO was founded in 2017, I was living in Silicon Valley at the time, and we had another AI company there, and we were kind of taking a look at the client of the both the global and the local Silicon Valley AI scene. And one of the things that we accidentally discovered is that the absolute level of Nordic and Finnish machine learning talent—kind of what you're describing—is actually really bloody competitive. Oh, if if you kind of best. benchmark it, um, e- like even to the highest highest standard of the highest standard markets, like for example in California. So you know, finding those teams like. Uh, it's like, ironically enough, even though Finland is a very desolate market, like when you talk about machine learning implementation, it's it is a huge asset that we have here locally.
1: Absolutely, and and you know on the DSP side as well, Tampere uh, mm. and, and Alto have world class PhD programs for audio. Mm. You know, you have these a few professors running the you know this uh, departments who are legendary. You know, like their eminences, yeah. world world recognized authorities in the subject and what that yeah. allows is that you know local talent have you know a pipeline to get a world-class training in, in whatever they want to pursue in their PhDs or even masters but it also mm-hmm. attracts a lot of foreign talent you know if you're a, a talented Italian or, or you know British DSP engineer actually doing your master's or PhD at Alto is very or, or at Temple University is very appealing because yeah, yeah the program is very competitive so a lot of our DSP people you know from finland from alto are are not finns there are people that Mm. moved here five years ago to again get their masters or the phd and they just stuck around um like the alto acoustics lab is like our secret weapon actually because there's like this (laughs) sort of like genius factory there That you know every year there's like like you know at least a couple really brilliant world-class uh engineers that that, you know you can try to recruit and, and bring over so yeah
0: yeah, like, like even the smaller universities here, like Olu University up in next yeah, to yeah. the Arctic Circle, like Olu University's head of computer vision, Matti and like for the longest time he used to outside Fei Fei Li, who was like Google's, Stanford's head of computer vision and Google's head of AI, I think yeah. for a long time. And like at Turku University, there's Turku NLP, um, which I think a year or two ago, like entered a competition to benchmark their language agnostic NLP parser against 26 top universities around the whole world, like Singapore, Stanford, Prague, um, like all of the tops. And Turku came out like aggregate score number one. And you know the funny thing is not a single newspaper has ever written any articles about these. So these are still kind of like the hidden industrial gems that are located like somewhere here far away in the peripheries. But yeah, go Finland, I suppose. Um, and moving on to the practical side of implementing ML, like I'd love to gouge out some of the lessons learned that you guys have had in terms of machine learning management and development, like over the path of Neural DSP. So. Can you talk about some of the challenges that you faced? Because I can only imagine that starting to implement machine learning into AMSIMS, like theoretically, sounds simple, but practically is everything but. So, is there something that you'd love to share with us? Kind of, oh, we wish we kind of knew this four years ago, type of things.
1: That's a very interesting question. I wouldn't change anything because everything sort of had to happen the way it happened. I mean, not knowing how not to do it is, is as important as, as knowing how to do it. Actually, uh, mm. a starting lesson was that. Uh, first, we weren't sure if the thing could work, like at all, you know, can, can we yeah. actually run a few signals and, and actually create a model that even passes sound, you know, forget about it sounded, you know, credible or, or even close to the source. Mm. Uh, after like a year of failing at that, the guys were able to actually do a study model, you know, like a capture without any controls that sounded mm. very, very close to the original amp. And I took days training it uh, on a very, very expensive, GP- I mean, expensive sort of steel kind of like, like, like a very expensive gaming rig, you know, not, not, not like mm. not, now we have, you know, server rooms, like we have a server room now. Uh, mm. But yeah, it took, you know, days to train on that. And the model took like, you know, 90% of your very fancy MacBook CPU. Yeah. The thing we realized, and you know, it wasn't even there yet. So what I, what I told the engineers, and we have one guy who was sort of specialized in, in optimization, mm. is okay, we need the training to be, yeah, and this was like the very first capture prototype, actually neural capture prototype. Yeah. Okay, so you know, we needed to take five minutes instead of you know I, I think it was like ten hours. So we need to take mm-hmm. it five minutes. So the training needs to take five minutes instead of and I, sorry it, it wasn't hours. I, I think it was like it was close to an hour training. Uh,
2: mm-hmm.
1: And yeah, it took like most of your CPU. So okay, we need to make it ten times faster, like the training itself. So that how mm-hmm. long does that, how long does it take to train the neural network? And, uh, you know, inference needs to run 10 times more efficiently for it to yeah. be even viable for quad cortex.
2: Yeah.
1: And, and you know, if you tell an engineer to optimize something by an order of magnitude, they might jump out the window, actually. <laughs> yes. If you tell that they need to it by two, you know, a hundredfold increase in, in efficiency, then yeah. they'll definitely jump out. The, they'll go to the elevator, to the top floor to jump out the window. And luckily, these guys are not only brilliant and committed, but they're also relentless and and very stubborn and they were like Mm. it's probably impossible but let's give it a crack and you know in six months it worked or like maybe a year it worked so yeah that was very inspiring because it's very easy to say yeah make it a hundred times faster you know it's very very i mean it's very easy for me to i just said it and and as as far as i'm concerned that's my my, that's my entire contribution to the effort (laughs) (laughs) then there is you know months and months of really long days and weekends and and despair and a lot of adversity that i am not even privy to because they don't want to freak me out or or just you know complain to me yeah that that we're involved into that so yeah that was very inspiring and 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 i'm really proud of these guys i mean they're they're i have uh i have so much respect and admiration for for most of for so many people in our team that that willing to go through things like that and more than also having the resilience and the you know pain tolerance to go through that like a lot of people that may have the pain tolerance may just not be able Mm. to do it because it's a very difficult task to do so to have people that have sort of all these traits is uh it makes me feel like i won the lottery to be honest
0: yeah yeah and the optimization part is like it's one of those biggest things I suppose that even for startups that do machine learning as their core thing to implement it into a product um, what is often in the beginning of the path to completely disregarded is the huge 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 need of optimization later on especially if you're going to run it on embedded hardware and there are startups like this in Finland who are like who are working on the first stages and they just know they see it looming in the horizon but they kind of don't want to touch it before they, they'll cross the bridge when they get there but it is a big thing that cannot be disregarded like if especially if you're working with edge hardware it was it difficult to find talent for you guys like you described that you found kind of the perfect match with aldo and with the research groups um but like with the concoction of having machine learning capability and dsp capability so how was it for you guys
1: oh yeah i mean it's like it it's a constant struggle especially in the beginning when you have barely any money and no visibility and no traction so you need to sell people pretty aggressively on you need to be very persuasive. Now, now it's a bit easier because, you know, we've achieved success and world well recognized. So a lot of people now come to us. We still mm-hmm. do quite a bit of recruiting and we have, you know, headhunters just trying to poach people from, from, from other companies. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I think for the cortex period, maybe from the beginning, uh, maybe it took two years until the team was like there, like the, the entire mm-hmm. team we needed to do it. And then it was like one more year of, of you know, development. Until it was ready for launch. Yeah. So yeah, uh, especially. Uh, I mean, DSP. Sort of like more conventional DSP. and machine learning now. It's a lot easier because there's a lot of a lot of younger guys who are into these things. The, the harder part on it's the embedded side of things. It's to find mm. people who really love Shark Assembly. Are <laughs> yeah, really yeah. good at Shark Assembly. Like that. That's super super hard to find. So I think we suffered more trying to hire those guys and. and our CTO who was running the Cortex project at the time, I think we went through, I think the attrition rate was like 50%. So, uh, when we raised our first funding round in 2019, mm. you know, we had like a half a million cash in the bank. So we're okay. Now we can actually finally hire more embedded speakers to start optimizing and porting the algorithms to run on Shark for the Quad Cortex. I think in a four month period of time, we hired five engineers, all mm. with excellent credentials and everything. And none of them were, none of them lasted more than two or three yeah, months, no. because just that the requirements were so intense, and you, you didn't need like pretty good people, you needed like remarkable people. Yeah. But then, yeah, we, we were able to get like three ninjas, actually two ninjas and one guy who was pretty young, but he was mm. sort of a ninja in the making. You know, yeah. jiu-jitsu. He was like a purple belt, not a black belt. Yeah. So uh yeah with some ninja support he he became a ninja pretty fast so yeah that that was like a that that was like a game changer that that actually happened in late 2019 so the first half of 2019 was miserable we hired a bunch of guys that were really expensive Mm. and 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 very useless actually some of them like if they would have done nothing it would have been better like if they would have just you know invoiced me every month and just watch Netflix all day, it would have been less damaging than than the work they did. So that was pretty bad. Yeah. In Q4, October uh, 2019, we got the first Ninja, and then things got really, really, really good. Um, Things moved a lot faster after that.
0: Yeah, and I suppose that was kind of the situation in the market in general as well. Like before 2017, 2018, like most of the people working around hardcore machine learning were indeed people in the academia. So it was like companies like Silo, for example, that kind of took a lot of the people under the wing and started to do kind of the conversion work, if you will, about how to make hardcore scientists Be able to contribute into hardcore industrial projects. Mm -hmm. But now, like once we reach 2019, 2020, 2021, the skill is becoming more democratized, right? Like at least the basic level skills of machine learning, like the hardcore expertise is still like rare air. But the basic capabilities are becoming more democratized. And on the other hand, the people who have the high level capability are becoming more able to contribute into private sector projects. So the market is in a really interesting point, like right now and for the past few years, I think.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I can give you about democratization. Uh, my wife mm-hmm. is a biologist, molecular microbiologist, PhD from Zink University. She works uh, in a big, I can't say the name, but it, it's one of the biggest Finnish companies, like food companies. And she, she was wondering if, if there was sort of utility in machine learning techniques for predicting food contamination risk. So, you know, you have all these sort yeah. of indicators, you know, once they pass a threshold or a particular combination can this actually? Can you write, you know, an algorithm that will detect that there's high risk here, and maybe like set an alarm so that people in the processing facilities, for example, can inspect samples and make sure that the food is safe? And actually, I, I told her like, you know, the same thing that we're discussing is like, machine learning should be like the last resort. Like you should try to see if there is any other approach. It's probably a lot easier to implement and cheaper mm-hmm. to implement that will get you the same or probably an even better result. And actually, what she decided to do was to take. Um, like basic Coursera machine learning course, mm. and then some MIT courses. Yeah. And that, now she's writing Python scripts, and, and she's <laughs> talking to me about linear regression and matrix yeah. multiplication. And she actually did a proof of concept that actually machine learning might be the best approach for it because she was able to do something that kind of works. And she, you know, she's not an expert, but you know, this like five years ago was unthinkable. Like the the threshold for you to even you know, play around with this with these things. So, it's really, you needed to be a specialist in the field, or you know, master student level in the field. So, it's incredible. I think it's one of the upsides of, of the hype. Yeah. Sometimes I justify that machine learning has. Uh, you know, we see this with every single big tech wave. It's kind of the same. Like there, there is merit to the concept, mm. but people blow it way out of proportion, and then you have these bubbles. In the case of 2000, yeah. it was you know, the .dot .com and everything would be on the internet and people really didn't understand what the internet was. It's like people didn't even understand what a website was. All they knew was that you had to have one. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there was sort of like this very inflated expectation of, of uh, how financially rewarding would being part of the .dot .com movement was. Mm-hmm. And then you had this bubble, things crashed. Almost everybody got killed except a very few. And actually those very few were PayPal, Amazon, <laughs> Google. Mm-hmm. I think we saw it. I don't know, maybe five, six years ago, it was remembered. Does anybody talk about, about big data anymore?
2: Mm-hmm. I've never
1: heard the term. It was like everywhere, talking like big data here, like I, in a, in a networking event, I met like 18 big data CEOs. <laughs> now, <Yeah>. I, <laughs> now they're all machine learning, or actually, well, then, then it was machine learning, or then it was AI for a few years, and now it's all about blockchain um <laughs> so our blockchain and now now it's sort of like transitioning from blockchain into web3 which i don't know i don't even want to get into that my blood pressure will, will, will increase uh it, it's, it's kind of goofy and it's funny but i think a big upside is that you know when these things become really hyped and people believe that there's good money and, and a cool factor to it they mm. will attract a lot of really smart people to it yeah. and i think like in a way a lot of sort of the real life benefits that machine learning already has on 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 all of us, on a daily basis, it probably would have taken a lot longer or to to get there, or it might have never happened if AI wasn't so hyped up, you know, a few mm, years ago. Mm. So in a way, the the hype is kind of goofy, but it's also good. I usually like to sort of instead of jumping into the next big thing, I like to sit on the sidelines, see if the whole thing <laughs> crashes, and if after the crash, you know, see what pieces are left, and if there's merit there. I might consider them, but uh, I'm the same with blockchain. Like, I don't know any Bitcoin, for example, yet I'm still 50-50 on whether it's worth investing in. Yeah. I'm yeah, sorry, I'm digressing.
0: No, but absolutely agree that. And that's kind of bringing us back to the genesis of like the whole conversation and kind of the genesis of Neural DSP as well. Like the best way kind of to consider machine learning, like if you're figuring out like where should I implement it, what should I do with it, is to just consider it as a catalyst. No more, no less. So. If you're Netflix, you have a recommendation algorithm that has a performance. Mm -hmm. If you implement some machine learning into it, the performance might increase. But it's probably, you shouldn't think about it as something transformative or something that is necessarily unlocking something that was impossible before. It's just making something a bit more efficient in such a way that it becomes commercially feasible to do it in that way. Like That's Mm -hmm. a much more healthy way of thinking about it rather than considering like, what's the next transformative or new thing that we can start doing with this. Like, it, for example, in the case of Neural DSP, the way that I hear it is you had the best people and you had the best vision and machine learning became just a key that opened some of the key locks that enabled mm-hmm. you to do what you do. But like kind of no more, no less in that sense.
1: Yeah, it was a catalyst. But, uh, but yeah, it wasn't the holy grail or the end will be all. Although it ended up being a lot closer to that than, than we originally expected. but But that was just a coincidence. I mean, mm. yeah, I mean, at the end, it all works out because I think where there is substance and merit, things will tend to go all right. Yeah. And when there's just people trying to use hype words to defraud cons- users or uh, investors, these people will inevitably fail. And I think the people that are vulnerable to get scammed, you know, investors and consumers,
2: mm-hmm.
1: tend to get sophisticated very quickly and, and, and uh, one would hope at least.
0: And we're starting to reach the end part of the podcast, but before we do, I'd love to spend just a few more minutes on Quad Cortex um, because Mm -hmm. like the flagship of Neural DSP. Um, So just to clarify, Quad Cortex is a physical device that basically the sounds and the models that Neural DSP produces lives within that. And in other words, it's also an edge device from an engineering perspective because you have a dedicated chipset inside that is aimed to run the inference of everything that you do. So can you talk a little bit about, because you've had the vision for quad cortex for quite some time as the way that I hear it, like from day one, like how was, how's the journey been for you so far? Like first you've had to start doing the modeling of the actual amps and the sounds, and then you've had to implement them into a physical edge device. So can you talk a little bit about your quad cortex development journey?
1: Sure. I mean, all these things happen in in quite in parallel, actually. So uh, the same time that we're wondering, okay, which screen size do we need and and which suppliers do we want, or are we going to use CNC aluminum or die casting? When we're sort of considering all these very early things, we already had people working on the algorithms. And that's why we we started doing plugins, actually, was because a plugin is basically a software product that's, you know, like it's like a 1% of the development of upward cortex, but you don't need to minus all the other development, right? Mm. Minus all the hardware manufacturing and all the other models you need for the quad cortex to be competitive in the market. So the plugins were initially uh our really sort of sort of like desperate attempt to make some money and, and build uh, building a brand way before we could have reasonably expected to have the quad cortex ready. Mm. So we had this that's why we had these two things in parallel. And in a way it enabled the quad cortex, but also it, it took a lot of time because of course the, the entire team was doing a lot of work for the plugins, you know, I was busy closing deals with artists or brands. Uh, My co-founder, who was running a lot of the Quad Cortex, you know, UX and UI design with the with the designers, was also busy doing the same for the plugins and same with the engineers. So it was like this very interesting processing which you had these two paths and, and they were sort of congruent, but also mm. the congruency wasn't a hundred percent. So in a way, it made the product possible, but it also delayed it quite a bit. Yeah. But I mean, it was really grueling. I think for the last for the last three years, four years, uh, it's been sort of like constant crisis mode because first it was like just development itself, like nothing was working, and, and, and you know you're running out of money, and mm-hmm. what do you do? Then. We, after, you know, suffering through like almost every week, there was this like existential threat uh, that we had to figure it out from scratch. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like the Silicon Valley show, you know, it's like, like, yeah. it's like you solve one thing and then you get a lawsuit or, you know, like <laughs> it was like, like every, no, not really lawsuits, but, but you know, like, like kind of like this cataclysmic events yeah, one yeah. after the other for months. Well, you, I think that the startup experience is quite universal in that sense that it's just mm-hmm. horrendously stressful and... and uh, the mentally challenging like, you know, emotionally challenging. Anyway, yeah. so first, yeah, we had like kind of like the, the sort of inherent startup pains of, you know, funding and, and recruiting and trying to lose very ambitious product uh, that you don't know if it's going to work and also very expensive. And then once you maybe overcome that, okay, then we announced the product in 2020, January in 2020. Mm-hmm. Huge release. We pre-sold like five million euros in two days. It was beyond our expectations at the NAM show, which is the biggest trade show in the music industry. Our booth was by far the, the fullest, uh, all the reps from the biggest shops that weren't even replying to my emails were now queuing to give me their business card, apologizing, yeah, sorry, I told you, I didn't have any time. I made time, you know, yeah. uh, so everything works out and we're like, okay, now we're golden, uh, yeah. we, we have production ongoing. The software will probably be, you know, sort of ready for prime time in six to 12 months. Mm. great and then covid happens and so you're like holy <laughs> fuck okay now, now we have a pandemic going on yeah uh, so yeah we sort of did all the manufacturing all the sourcing and everything through the pandemic and chip shortages so we had to implement these very strict safety procedure rules in our factory because if mm. somebody you know now if somebody shows up with covid they just go home and that's it like yeah might get nobody cares but you know 2 years ago it was like very serious like you might shut down you might have to shut down your whole operation for a couple of weeks and that, that mm-hmm. would have been that would have been catastrophic right so i mean it it's the whole thing is just this like constant it's like this constant struggle to be honest you saw one thing and then the next is surely around the corner mm. and i think that's one of the main things i tell all my friends that want to start a company is like you know i, I give them a very honest sort of overview of what my life is like and you know and things are going great like I, i'm I'm like on the lucky ten percent that didn't go bankrupt in two years. Yeah, and it's like, it, is this truly what you want for your life? Like, do you really think you're, you're willing to go through this? And you know, if the answer is like, "Oh, fuck you," I, I, you won't tell me what to do. I'm doing it anyway. Then, then I know, okay, you, you, you might have a chance. But if my 15 minutes sort of complaining, litany of how difficult it is, is enough to dissuade you from trying it. <laughs> you're never gonna make it because like that's nothing i mean like somebody not believing in you it's nothing like most people don't believe in you like your first customers don't believe in you the first people employees you approach don't believe like nobody will believe in you in the beginning yeah you have to earn that you know credibility
2: Mm. uh
1: it's hard but but to be honest that's why that's why it's so important to me i think that through this struggle you're forced to to achieve these dreams, you have to become a much better version of yourself than like when you start. Mm. The best catalyst for the growth and learning is challenges and sometimes downright suffering. It's, you know, it's like failing miserably and then figuring out why. Like, why are you doing wrong? Uh, and also not just sort of in the execution and the, the skill part of running a company or creating a brand, but it's also in your own psychology. Like, how mm. do you react to things? Yeah. Learning how to deal with uncertainty, you know, learning how to deal with Hopelessness, you know, like, can you actually go through months of just hopelessness and still do what you know needs to get done, even if it feels pointless, just because you know that that's the right thing to do? Like, learning those skills and, and that resilience is key and is very useful in life in general, but you don't, you can't buy it and you're not born with it. It's something that you need to, it's like, you know, it's like getting a black belt in jiu-jitsu Like, there's no amount of money you can put on the problem or, or genetics that you can put in the problem that that will give you that, like you need to earn it through a decade of just getting strangled, (laughs) destroyed on the mats every day. And I think entrepreneurship is very similar. And for me, that makes it not just an occupation. For me, it's a vehicle for forging meaning, uh, like existential meaning. And that's why I love it so much. And that's why I'm willing to put up with all this shit, to be honest, (laughs) because I believe that it'll make me better at some point.
0: Here, here, that's... (laughs) That's beautifully put. So Doc, we're starting to reach the end part of the episode. Um, but as is customer in inference, we predict the future. Ooh. And I'd love to get a prediction out of you. So how do you see, which direction do you see the professional music technology taking within the next five years? Like what are going to be the major trends or some of the things that are looming within your horizon when we talk about professional music technology development?
1: So I think one of the great benefits of technical advancement for creators is the democratization of good sound, because, you know, with products like ours now for a hundred bucks, you can get thousands of dollars worth of equipment mm. um, with a Focusrite 100D interface. You don't need and, and our software, you know, for a few hundred bucks, you don't need to go to a studio that will charge you a grand a day or more. So mm. that democratization, like the, the sort of monetary threshold needed to, to create good sounding music has been lowered. And that's great. And that's been going on steadily for the last twenty years. Mm. I think the the missing the missing element to have like an explosion in, in the number of people that are actually recording and self producing and publishing music online mm. is to democratize the amount of skill you need to go from your cool music idea to a good sounding song.
2: Mm. So
1: what I hope I'm not really making a prediction, but what I hope will happen and will definitely try to contribute to this is actually using machine learning Create tools that will help people automate a lot of the difficult and sort of like nerdy parts of recording music. You know, like sound engineering and, and mastering. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that now, for a few hundred bucks, you have access to the best sounding software, and also with tools, you can recreate the results that you know a thousand dollar per track mixing a mastering engineer would charge you mm-hmm. for. You know, again, like a hundred x less money. So I think yeah, uh, automating more portions of of music production so that now there's a creator in everyone.
0: And with that, Douglas, thank you so much for coming on for anyone listening. I do strongly, strongly, strongly recommend if there's an, even an ounce of musician in your body, I recommend to check out Neural DSP's website and some of the products they have as I believe you have a 14 day trial for all of the plugins there. Yep. You can try it for free. And please do follow Doug as well. Like at least your Instagram is absolutely amazing. So dog dark <laughs> go, go yes. and have a follow um, this because one of the things that I love about the social media presence of neural DSP and dark glass is the fact that you share the creations of all of the people who use the products and are proud enough to push them out. So you're basically a forum for them to basically portray the skills and what they've achieved using the products that you've built.
1: Of course, yeah. That's very fun, actually, to see how people use them and, and, you know, happy if we can give them a bit more visibility. So, yeah, if you use our products, tag me at darkless and uh, at Neural dsp, and, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll repost, share.
0: Lovely. Doug, once more, thank you so much for coming on, and for anyone listening, have a great day.